Isaiah 52, please. Open your Bibles to Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, illumine our minds. Cause our hearts to receive your word and not to repel it. Break down the stubbornness of our sinfulness and sin, the stubbornness of our hearts, and let us, cause us to see Christ, crucified, magnified, and exalted. Open blind eyes that they may see your glory shine through. Cause them to see that Christ, magnified on the cross, is the means of our salvation. Cause us all to have a refreshing view of the cross and a greater appreciation of the resurrection. Help us, Lord, to savor our Savior. For your name we pray. Amen. This morning we look at the glorious victory of the suffering servant in the atonement. And we will briefly start looking at the results. I know I said we will look at the results uh, today, but I am already over time on my sermon because I'm starting a little bit later than normal, so I'm going to push it back a week. What is the nature of vicarious penal substitutionary atonement? And what are some of the results? That's a good question. These two are connected. There are tremendous implications for both. The results of the atonement tell us something about the atonement. It reveals what was achieved and for whom it was achieved. It also shows that apart from the resurrection, there is no effect of the death of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then He did not atone for our sins. It also shows that the atonement includes both the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only the death. Often when I hear or read about the atonement, it just is saturated with the blood work of Christ, and rightly so. But that's not all to the atonement. It is much wider than that. When we started this um, on last Sunday, I said that it's like a web. This doctrine touches almost every other doctrine in the Scripture. This invasive doctrine determines how we think about the church, how we think about the character of God. It informs our understanding of the love of God and directs the perception of the will of God. Not only so, but directs the perception of how we understand the will of man, the freedom of man, and the choice of man. The atonement tells us that Jesus died for sinners in the place of sinners because they could not help themselves. The atonement tells us that He, in dying for us, bore our sins in His body on the tree because we could not do that. 
The atonement tells us that he lived a perfect life and, and completely and satisfactorily met the high demand and the righteous requirement of God on our behalf. The atonement tells us that he rose from the dead because we would remain in the grave. Now, we are not able to cover every aspect of, its aton- of the atonement, and we've had three sermons on it. And this is an irregular Easter service because it stretches over three sermons, Sunday last, uh, Sunday past, Friday, and then today. And it all covers the atonement. It is a vast subject. I haven't even started to touch on the deep theology that is present in this doctrine. Last Sunday we looked at the importance of the atonement, which was more of a theological, systematic look of the atonement. Friday we saw the nature of the atonement and the nature of sin, what it is. It is a vicious rebellion and a rejection of all that God is and all that God stands for. It is a transgression of God's high command. One sin deserves eternal punishment. That was the gist of Friday's sermon. Today we will see the nature of the atonement and its results. This takes us to Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm going to do what my preaching professor said not to do. Do not have more than five or six sermon points. Because you will lose people. We have 13 today. That That is double than I was told not to do. So... Hang on. I know that there is a lot to get through. She's leaving already. She's like, I'm done. <laughs> 13. <laughs> we'll get through it. <clears throat> this is more like a running commentary for the, for the sake of those who are here just for today. Next week, we will look particularly at the results, and I will mention it today, the results of the atonement. That is tremendously important because often we don't think of what comes after that. The only thing we think of is eternal life. Jesus gave us eternal life. There is so much more that Christ has given to us in the atonement. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Wow. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You will see the significance of that next week. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ suffered on behalf of his people. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ in our place, in our stead, on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. There's a divine exchange that takes place on the cross. Year two, Peter shows that Christ stood condemned for us. 
by God's divine design, 1 Corinthians 15 just ended up to be the passage this morning. And it says, I delivered to you first of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. This is not New Testament scripture, even though it may include that. This is Old Testament scripture according to the scriptures. He was buried and that on the third day he was raised in accordance with scripture. When the Bible speaks about the atonement, it is not just the death of Jesus Christ. His life and the resurrection is included in that. Because if you do not have the perfection of Jesus Christ, and you do not have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you do not have atonement. Both are required, including the cross. So all these verses speak and advocate the satisfactory, vicarious, penal substitution of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have not been here, I defined it both last week and on Friday. I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. But this is where biblical Christianity separates from all other faiths or religion. Judaism believes that Jesus died on the cross, but he died as a man and was not risen from the dead. He got confused sometime, somehow in his life and thought he was the Messiah. And unfortunately, he died for that. Of the resurrection, they say that the gardener came and stole his body. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that what was decided? Let us say that his body was stolen so that they would not believe in the resurrection. And to this day, they believe that the body of Jesus was, was stolen. Islam says that Jesus was a great messenger of God. But he was neither crucified nor did he die on behalf of his people. God also did not raise him from the dead. But something happened. Jesus was raised to the Father. Something like the ascension actually took place. So they believe that Jesus was a messenger of God, a great prophet, but he did not die for his people, nor was he raised from the dead. That's why there is no salvation in both Judaism and Islam. Hinduism believes that Jesus is the perfect example of self-realization. No salvation in Hinduism because there is no atonement there. This is where Biblical Christianity is far removed from every other faith or religion. Biblical Christianity places Jesus Christ in the place of ruin, condemned, depraved sinners on the cross, on their behalf, bearing the shame, bearing the punishment, bearing the wrath of God on their behalf because no one, no one could. That is love. When we walk into Isaiah 52 and 53, essentially 52, 13 is part of 53. Our versification and our, the chapter breaks is unfortunate. It is one long section that actually starts in verse 13. We are 700 years before the time of Christ. That is significant. Because it's not only perfectly fulfilled, but this is not written as a prediction. That may shock you. This is not written 
as a future prophecy. We will look at the text and I will highlight why I say that. Isaiah 53, and I get this from a professor of mine, he said that when Jews in synagogues today get to Isaiah 53, they jump right over it. They refuse to read it. Because they believe that this chapter actually speaks about suffering Israel, but because the Gentiles have stolen it and made it about the Messiah, they refuse to read it in the light of that. Yet there is little evidence for that. Jewish tradition actually indicates that this is a prophecy of the Messiah. Now, I said prophecy, but it's not predictive. And, and, and it will make sense in a moment. So let's read together. Behold, my servant, verse 13 of chapter 52, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Predictive, looking forward to a time of exaltation. And I'll explain that. As many were astonished at you. His, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form, form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So there are two elements of prediction in these passages. But the rest of it, past tense. Listen to chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up, gain past tense, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are Healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we all have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away. And for his generation who considered 
and, and, and as for his generation who considered. And he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressions. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Wow. There are two aspects to this sermon. Not, not my sermon, the sermon that Isaiah is writing about. It is God's testimony of the Messiah. And God writes in terms of a completed act in the future. So from the vantage point, sorry, vantage point, that it is done. God is looking back. But it is not God saying these things. It is the people who looks back at the Messiah who are saying these things. The aspect relating to the future glory and majesty and work of the Messiah, those are all future because that is still ongoing. But as to the aspect of his death, from the vantage point of this passage, it is past. It is done. Now that may confuse us a little bit. So in Hebrew, there are two primary aspects of the verb. There is the perfect and the imperfect, and there are other aspects. But the two primary ones are the, the perfect and the imperfect. The perfect generally relates to past, and the imperfect generally relates to future. In this sense, in this tense, in this case, I should say, the passage relates predominantly to things that has happened. What this passage is after is the suffering of the Messiah and the completion of his work. It begins with, Behold my servant. This, in mentioning this, Isaiah makes an intertextual connection to chapter 42, verse 1 through 6, where the servant is mentioned as the Messiah. It's the same servant. So the same person is in view here, the Messiah who is to stand in place of his people. Now, 52 13 is the introduction, it's the summation of chapter 53. It actually gives us everything that 53 is going to speak about in a short, brief synopsis. 
So I'm going to highlight at least two truths from 52 and then walk into 53. So here we go with the 13 quick truths concerning Messiah. Verse 13, the future glory of Messiah. Notice what it says. Behold, my servant, speaking about the Messiah, shall act wisely. This is future predictive. The word here, wisely, literally means prosper. He will have success. In other words, he will not fail. And there's a connection between the, the, the way of acting, being wise in your action, and the success that comes from that action. In this sense, in this way that it is used here, it is the total package. Not only is he going to act wisely, but he will be successful in what he does. So from the get-go, God says, My servant, Messiah, will utterly be successful in what he does. It begins with the end. That he has done it, it's completed, it is done. He will ultimately do what he set out to do. Take note how this success is described. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's almost an overkill of the same idea. It's the same thing that is being mentioned here. He shall be high and greatly lifted up. Now, a lot of times people think that this speaks about the cross. No, this is beyond the cross. Because of the success that God or Yahweh has in view, this is the result of that. He shall be exalted. Again, the end is in view. He will be crowned with glory. He will be exalted. The, the word here lifted up can be used figuratively and literally, figuratively of raising the head, that is to exalt a person, that is an old, old Hebrew idiom, or to literally raise the hand, to be lifted up above something else. That is the sense that, it, it, that is in view here. Christ will be exalted. He will be greatly exalted. Think Philippians chapter 2. High and exalted. Above all thrones, above all powers, above all things, he will successfully be exalted. The sense of the commencement of his exaltation, the continuation of his, of his exaltation, and the climax of his, of his exaltation is all in view in this phrase. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is a future view of the finished work of Christ. Not the cross, but the net result of the cross. Philippians 2 tells us that before the exaltation comes, what took place? The death and the suffering of the Messiah. What we have here is the view of that exaltation. The end is in view, and I, I mentioned this when we started in um, last Sunday. That Revelation chapter five started with the end. Why? Because at the end we will look back at the cross and exalt Him for His worthiness, give Him glory eternally for the fact that He gave His life a ransom for us. 
The exaltation of Jesus Christ is the ultimate climax, the ultimate uh, exaltation of His glory and majesty. He will be exalted. It is important to note that the, the success, the success of Christ, the success of God's plan is not salvation. Think about that. We often hear about the redemptive plan, and that is a good term. God has a redemptive plan, but that seems to be the ultimate goal of God. That is not. The ultimate goal of God the Father is the exaltation of the Son. The way that He exalts the Son is through a humiliating death, suffering on the cross, and He will be exalted far above all authority, all kings, all thrones, for God has given Him the name that is worthy to be exalted. It is important to know that the salvation of our souls is not the ultimate goal of God's plan, but the glory of the Son. It is also worthy to note that since God starts with the end, that the Son will not remain in the grave, because if He remains in the grave, there is no exaltation. So the exaltation of the Son means that He will triumph over the grave. That is why God starts with the end. Secondly, Messiah's revelation. As many were astonished at you. This is an interesting passage. Again, now we are looking at past tense. God is looking back at the cross. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Have you ever seen pictures of Jesus Christ? It's a beautiful image. It's probably the most beautiful person on earth is the drawings of Jesus Christ. I've never seen an ugly Jesus. Never. Take a listen. As many as were astonished at you, his his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Didn't look like a human. There's no movie or painting that could adequately express the way that they mauled the Son of God on the cross. The text begins with as many, but the sense is literally just as many or for like many will be astonished or were astonished at you. So this implies that it's going to be completed. The thought will be completed. So let me read it that way. Just as or as many were astonished at you. So where is the completion of this uh, thought? Verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. It may not make sense yet. Just hang on there. They were appalled, in verse 14, at the appearance of this man. His form was beyond recognition than any child of Adam. But notice what it says. So he sprinkled many nations. So that act causes people to stand in awe. Now, this word sprinkle can be confusing because immediately we think of the sprinkling of the blood 
or the inclusion of the nations. The, the word literally means to startle. And I'm going to go with a minority view on here because it makes sense in the context. Now listen. Verse 15 is the completion of the thought in verse 14. For as many as were astonished at you, so shall he that is God um, startle many nations. Makes sense now. Instead of sprinkle, because if we think sprinkle, it's going to, you may think inclusion as salvation. But here God will startle the nations and that is explained in the next two uh, stanzas. So just as they at the cross were shocked and in awe at his physical appearance, they did not want to look upon him, so God in a future day will shock the nations. That is what he's saying. They will stare at him in wonder and awe. Notice what he says in the next line. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. Think in terms of the only person in a nation who has the freedom to speak is the king. Or would be our president today, right? He's got the freedom that nobody has. If he says, shut it, you shut it. It's like dad in home, right? When dad says, shush. Well, unless you're in my home. Because nobody listens to me in my home. Then you shush. So why kings? Because kings were generally the standard. And as the king goes, so the nations go. So what he's saying is that even kings are going to be shut up. Which means if the kings are putting their hands over their mouths, what is the people doing? Doing the same thing. They're standing and staring at the sun in awe. You know when you do something wrong? More like when um, you realize that you were wrong. <gasps> that happens a lot to me. This dramatic expression says they will recognize who he is. That's why the nations will startle at him. They will stare at him in Wonder, in shock, and in awe. He completes the thought by saying, For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The revelation of the Messiah does not matter whether whether they heard it or received the message. They will stand in awe and they will understand it. That's what he's saying. For that which has not been told them, they now see. God will make clear to every person, this is who the Messiah actually is. And that which have not, uh, have, uh, they have not heard, they understand. They will absolutely get it. Jesus is Messiah. And they will bow the knee. The shock and awe of this moment cannot be adequately expressed. But take note, it doesn't matter that they were not given the revelation. It doesn't matter that they did not hear. The reaction will be the same. 
God will cause every knee to bow and every mouth to confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what is in view here. They will stand and look at him in shock and awe and recognize this is he. What a demonstration of the success of the Son of God. It's the exaltation that crushes the unbending pride and knee of mankind. You may not believe that Jesus Christ is God. You may not want to believe that He reigns as Lord over all things. But in this day, you will. And it will not be to your salvation. Notice what it says. They understand, not they believe. They get it. But they are not saved by it. God's victory uh, and success that is granted to the Son is by means of a tremendously painful experience on earth. That is verse 14. But the net result of that is his exaltation far above and everyone will see, even those who have not heard about him. And they will bow before the worthy one. That's the summary of chapter 53. That's the introduction to my sermon. Point number three. In Isaiah 53, we have Israel's unbelief, and it goes between Israel's, uh, Israel and the Messiah. And so I will just give you the point as it is in the verse. I don't like alliteration because I'm not good at it, and uh, it, nobody's going to be saved by outlines anyway. So don't get too upset that my sermon points are very plain and simple. Israel's unbelief. Take note that now we changed from God speaking about the Messiah to Israel saying truth about the Messiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Take note that it is past tense, and I'm going to mention this previously. This is significant because this is a moment in the history of Israel, future, that looks back at the Messiah And they recognize something. This is known as Israel's confession. So listen carefully. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? The the meaning here about what he has heard uh, from us is literally the, the relationship here in the Hebrew is who has believed our message? Who has believed the message that has been given to us? Our message. So who has believed our report? Make sense now? Who has believed what has been granted and given to us? Who's believed this, is he asking? He is asking. And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? The arm of Yahweh is synonymous with God's salvation. God's acting on behalf of his people. And here it is the servant. 
The arm of Yahweh is the one who comes to provide salvation. So to whom has God's provision of salvation been revealed? What is the answer? To us. Israel. The Jews. That is his point. Unfortunately, what we have done as Gentiles, we've stolen this and we've put us in those passages. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us because at the end, you will see that it does apply to us. But here, the Jews are confessing the reality that they have missed it. The arm of Yahweh, the salvation of Yahweh has been given to them, has been revealed to them. This is a past action. But why this disbelief? Why did they not believe in the Messiah? Point number four. Because of Messiah's low estate. Verse two. He grew up before him, and could be them, and I'll explain that, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should behold him or that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Again, past tense. This is how he grew up, like a young plant. In other words, He had no outstanding quality. There was no splendor to Jesus. You know the paintings of Jesus which portrays this beautiful Jewish man. A man of men. No. In his young days, he was ugly. That is what he's saying here. He was like a twig, an offshoot of the branch. The branch is where the nourishment is. You know what happens to the offshoot? It gets pruned. It gets cut off. In other words, the the reason for their rejection is because the Messiah didn't come in splendor. He didn't come in the majesty of a king. He didn't come with royalty. He wasn't born to a line that was high and exalted and lofty. In fact, the line of the, 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 the throne, or sorry, the line of the kings of David was reduced to a shepherding role by the time of Jesus. Insignificant, unimportant. This is an interesting picture of Jesus. We are sometimes scared to say that Jesus was not attractive. Yet the Bible says that he wasn't. There was nothing outstanding about Jesus. He wasn't like Saul that stood ahead above everyone else. He wasn't like David that was beautiful and what a red face. I don't understand that one yet. But <laughs> like a root out of dry ground. Take note of this. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Jesus didn't stand out in the crowd. In fact, there is language of a king. He had no kingly look to himself. And so we rejected him. No beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing outstanding about Jesus. Nothing on his external that made him a desirable element or aspect or person in the time of Jesus. And so, because of how he looked, they rejected him. This can't be a king. It doesn't look like one. 
Number five, not only was there the Messiah's lowest state, but also there was Messiah's rejection, which is an explanation of us to look at Messiah's rejection in verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His whole life was characterized by rejection. Ask why? Why was the Messiah rejected? Why was the Messiah treated as one who had no worth, no value, no right, or no majesty? The rejection he received was part of what we should receive. We weren't born to the line of kings, were we? Nor were most of the Jews. The rejection that Jesus received in his life is part and parcel of the rejection that his people receives on a daily basis. The life of Jesus is far more than him just growing up as a young little boy, insignificant little man. It means to consider something or someone to be worthless and worthy of attention. That's what he received. The Son of God, the King of glory, received no second glance. Notice the explanation of this. He was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. The chief cause of his sorrow and grief were not the personal ills or physical pains of people or of himself, but it was the heartfelt sorrow in his soul. He was weighed down for his people. He was intimately acquainted, knew very well what it meant to be weighed down in his heart. You think you have a problem with depression? You think you've got it hard in life? The eternal king of glory was rejected by the entire world. Messiah was rejected. Again, past tense. And we esteemed him not. We didn't think of him as somebody that could be our Messiah. We didn't exalt him to the place that he rightfully deserved. This is Israel's confession. There is a time coming when Israel will believe in the Messiah. And this is written from that vantage point. Number six. Israel's confession of Messiah's sacrifice. So not only do they confess that he was rejected by them, but they also confess the substitutionary nature of Messiah's uh, um, suffering. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne, think Jews, our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see that repetition? That is why I mentioned it in verse 3. It is the sorrows and the griefs that we were to bear he bore on our behalf and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. This is a confession. 
These griefs and sorrows are metaphors for sin. That is what Jesus bore. And notice what he says at the end. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Israel didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They saw him die. What did they think? Shame. This man is cursed by God. This man is cursed. But the reality is, he bore the griefs and the sorrows and the sins that his people could not bear in his body on the tree. Point number seven. We are almost halfway there. This explains Israel's confession of the substitution of Messiah's sacrifice. They get it. Verse five. But he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. Again, see that personal pronouns, our. Think again, Jewish perspective. They are looking back and they, they are acknowledging, yes, he was pierced through for our transgressions against God the Father. He was crushed for our iniquities. The crushing year is the cruel agonies that results in death. He was utterly brought to the point of giving his life up for his people. I know that there are those who struggle with Israel in the future and their salvation. This psalm is written from that point of view when Israel believed or will believe God. This has not taken place yet. This is the nation coming to understand the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God, of God Himself reconciling His people to Himself on the cross. Take note of what they say. In the middle of his five, or at the end of his five, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That would bring us back to God was placed upon him. That is substitution. They get it. And with his wounds, we are healed. Oh my, how has this verse been taken out of context? This is not physical healing. The wounds that he's talking about is the fact that we have a spiritual problem, an illness that results in death. It is defined as transgressions and iniquities. That illness is placed upon him. And the chastisement, the punishment that would result in our holistic healing of our soul has been poured out on him. That is penal substitution. Again, it's repeated in verse 6, but we'll look at that in a moment's time. What this means then is that the just penalty, the judicial penalty 
of God's high demand has been poured out adequately and sufficiently upon Christ for his people. Christ is substituted in the place of those whom he will save. We are healed from our sin problem. We are healed not from physical ailments because we still get sick. But the problem of our separation from God. Spiritual sickness has been removed. Adam's curse. Remember what I said on Friday? Everyone born to Adam is born with the propensity to revolt against God. That's the net result. And die. It's an ongoing reality. But in Christ, both are removed. And you would say, well, hang on, hang on. We die still. Yes, but what did Jesus say? If you are in me, you will what? Never die. He does not reverse the effects of the fall. He replaces the, the effects of the fall. Christ is not here to redo what Adam did or undo what Adam did. Christ came to replace what Adam did. Also, unlike the high priest who had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, notice what it says. He bore our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was placed on him. Here the nation acknowledges the substitutionary atonement of Messiah. And the net result of that is reconciliation with God. The chastisement that brought us peace. That is peace between man and God. The theology that we've been looking at in the New Testament is very much present in the Old Testament. The confession shows that they come to understand in a future day that Christ bore their sins and the penalty of their transgression so that they may be saved. Number eight. In verse 6, we see Israel's confession of Messiah's substitution for the sheep. This is particular substitution for the sheep. Slightly different to the substitution in verse 5. Here it is singled out. Notice what it says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Here he states the problem. And we all... Everyone turned to his own way. We have turned everyone to his own way. He's talking about the sheep. So all sheep, his sheep, have gone away. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's the all? The sheep. And so he's saying that they will come to understand in Israel's confession that the Messiah, the great shepherd, gave his life up for his what? Sheep. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 10. What does it say? I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. 
That's what they will come to realize. And I know that there are those who say, hang on. So this is actually written from the New Testament point of view where the Jews in the New Testament come to uh, understand and confess. It actually goes beyond that. Because it goes beyond the, the confession of the New Testament saints. This is the nation's confession of who the Messiah is. They look back at that moment and say, hang on, why on earth did they reject him? I like verse 9, 10, and 11, including 12, because it deals with what Easter actually deals with. In verse 7, we have Messiah's trial, point 9. In verse 10, we have Messiah's death, uh, point 10. In verse 9, we have Messiah's burial, in verse 11. And in verse 12, we have Messiah's resurrection. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. When did that take place? At his crucifixion. At his trial. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I love what Cameron said, that they mocked him as a king. They, they slapped him. They put a reed in his, uh, in his hand and fake bowed before him. This is what this nation or this group of people look back to. Why on earth would they do that? Yet he opened not his mouth. The Lord of glory who could crush him by one word chose not to say a word. You know what that is? That is grace. Verse 8, Messiah's death by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. If you've read the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, this should jump out at you. He was taken away. What happened to the goat? He was taken outside the camp. The language is he is removed or taken away. And for his generation, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, that lamb is cut off <clears throat> from the nation, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for transgressions of my People. It is interesting that he uses that word cut off. And previously, I think it's in verse 3, where he says that he's a shoot. Um, uh, is it verse 3? No, it's in verse 2. Verse 2, he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. Speaks of a shoot that is eventually cut off. The cutoff is his death. Jesus is removed from the living. In fact, it says in verse 9, And he made his grave with, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The perfect Son of God was murdered. He was killed and buried in a grave 
as if he was a criminal. But notice in verse 12. I'm going to read verse 10 through to 12. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. And he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Hang on. How is he able to see his offspring if in the previous verse he dies? Something happens in order for the Messiah to see the success of his work. Notice what it says. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. It begins with the will in the beginning of verse 10 and it ends with the will in the end of verse 10. All in all, what he's talking about, it's the will of the Father for him to die and it's the will of the Father for him to be successful. The will of the Father is that he, through his death and resurrection, he will have an offspring. He will have his people. He will take from the world of people an offspring for, for himself, and he will have length of days, that is, prolong his days. That's the meaning there. In other words, he will live forever. Wow. In the Old Testament, we have a testimony of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Number 13, look at Messiah's victory. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And his knowledge shall be right, uh, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, uh, make many to be accounted righteous. What is that? Justification. By the death, I should say, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees his imputed righteousness to his people that they may be declared right with God, righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Messiah's victory is that he will see the work that he has done because he will not remain in the grave. He will make many Righteous, take note, it does not say all, but many. That is justification. Verse 12 tells us about Messiah's kingdom. I could probably have had a point 14. Let me make it point 14. Messiah's kingdom. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Think Revelation chapter 5. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession, that is his current work, for transgressors. He will ultimately reign and give of his reward to his people. The servant this Son of God, the Messiah, will come to earth, will be rejected by men, and the nation in a future day will look back at this day and look and say, we rejected him and yet he gave his life for us. I wonder if there's a verse that says he came unto his own and his own received him not. The servant will be greatly blessed in the end. Because he died on behalf of others. And because of that, 
He now intercedes and stands on, in, on our behalf before the Father. The work of Christ is an ongoing work, not a once-off work. But I'm, I mean by that, that he's, he's not dying constantly. The intercession is ongoing. This is why we need a substitute. Because we have a sinful sickness that causes us to revolt against God. The many which he speaks about in verse 11 includes others. Includes not only the nation of Israel, but those who are outside the realm of Israel as well. Substitutionary atonement speaks about the perfect sacrifice of the God-man Jesus Christ on behalf in the place of sinners receiving their penalty before God for them so that we may have life in him. What are some of the results of the atonement? I'll read it to you and then we'll end on that. Number one, Jesus takes away the cup of God's wrath. Number two, Jesus brings reconciliation, redemption, victory, forgiveness through his blood. Number three, Jesus gives his perfect righteousness to sinners. Number four, Jesus brings a perfect righteousness in the keeping of the law for his people. If you want to know more about that, come back next Sunday. Wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, and now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. Can you say that? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for the tremendous truth of the substitutionary, penal, vicarious, satisfactory atonement of Jesus Christ. We are saved not by means of the blood of lambs or goats, but by the death and the resurrection of your Son. Father, there are those that need to be changed by your word. We pray that this morning you would speak to them, change their minds, change their hearts, cause them to repent that they may become your children. Pray that for us who are believers, may we have a deeper appreciation of your great and expansive work. Israel will be saved in a future day. They will look back at your son. They will marvel. The nations will stand in awe because he will be exalted. Thank you, Father, for the precious, the worthy one, the majesty, the glory of your Son. We pray that this would move us not only to tears, but to Savior, savor the Savior in our daily lives. As we thank you now for Jesus Christ, our Savior. For his name we pray. Amen.